0: nuclear physics is our topic today on creation magazine live we'll be sitting down with dr jim mason whose phd is in experimental nuclear physics you won't want to miss it
1: it's reasonable and logical to be a christian and we'll discuss yet another reason why on today's podcast
0: Welcome to Creation Magazine LIVE! I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith and we're pleased today to have a uh, special guest, Dr. Jim Mason. Jim, yes. thanks very much for joining us on the show. Welcome, My pleasure, Jim. Calvin. Yeah.
1: Here, here's a physics related news item. Just recently it was announced that uh, Peter Higgs and Francois Englert were jointly awarded the 2013 Nobel Prize in Physics. Now this was for, to, to quote the Nobel uh, website, This was for the theoretical discovery of a mechanism that contributes to our understanding of the origin of mass of subatomic particles and which recently was confirmed through the discovery of of the predicted fundamental particle by the Atlas and CMS experiments at CERN's Large Hadron Collider. Now there, there's a mouthful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this mechanism, as it's uh, referred to in the announcement, generally known as the Higgs boson, right? That's the that's the God particle. Um, given this nickname, uh, what should Christians make of this um, you know, discovery? Does this discovery of, uh, have anything to do with uh, proving or disproving God, or or what? What should we take away from this?
2: In in no way, and and I'll explain uh, that in a bit. But but first, um, to me, the Higgs boson actually provides a pretty clear demonstration of the quite incredible design intelligence there is behind the universe, that is, in fact, okay. the creator God yeah. of the Bible. But to explain that we need to, to understand a little bit more about what the Higgs boson is and where it fits in our uh, understanding of how, what matter is and how it works. Right. But I think first I'd like to comment on that uh, uh, nickname that it has, the God particle, right. um, that actually came about when a popular science writer was writing in a magazine and referred to it as the God Expletive Deleted Particle really? because it had turned out to be so difficult to find. Ah. The people at the magazine thought that was probably an inappropriate way, <laughs> way to express it, so they actually did delete the expletive and it became known as the God Particle. Huh. Since that time, <clears throat> it's kind of taken on a, an almost religious connotation that it's considered to be somehow you know, a superior particle with almost supernatural right. um, characters. But, but it's not it's just a particle in fact it's one of seventeen particles that comprise what's referred to in particle physics as the standard model okay. and to understand what the standard model is uh... it consists of three types of particles they're called quark, quarks which people may have heard from and, and may remember the cbc program quarks and quarks <laughs> um, leptons and gauge bosons of which obviously the higgs boson is the most recent The bosons, of which there are now five, are the particles uh, which uh, give us the four fundamental forces that we have in the universe. Those are the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the force of gravity, and the electromagnetic force. Um, Prior to the experimental confirmation of the Higgs boson, probably the best-known boson was the photon, which is the particle that's associated with the electromagnetic force. Uh, photons are the things in effect that, that uh, allow you to see light and which make digital cameras work. Um, the other gauge bosons are gluons which are associated with the strong n- nuclear force and that's a real name, that's what the scientists call <laughs> yeah, it, the call gluon. name. I just yeah. didn't make that up. Yeah. Um, and uh, W and Z bosons which are responsible for the weak nuclear force. So with photons, gluons, W and Z bosons, we have a theoretical explanation of three three of the four forces in the universe um, and the thing that was missing was a theoretical explanation of gravity and, and that's because there wasn't a good theoretical explanation for the, the uh, property of mass and mass of course is kind of critical to the uh, force of gravity, gravity sure, and, yeah. and that's where the Higgs boson comes in because it was the theoretical particle associated with defining mass for all the other particles. Now to understand <clears throat> how a particle can uh, create mass for other particles. Consider this, this analogy. You've got an auditorium full of people who are movie fans, and, and so the, the people you can consider to be the individual bosons, okay. and this room full of people is the field uh, um, associated with those bosons. And so you get some well known movie star comes in one door of the auditorium and wants to cross over the auditorium and go out of the other door, he's going to have a difficult time. Right. Because right? people are going to want to get his autograph and talk to him about this and shake his hand and all of that sort of thing. So he's got a heavy mass. He's a heavyweight, okay. heavyweight all actor. All right, yeah, it makes sense. So if you've got somebody who isn't a movie star who comes in and wants to do the same thing, they can walk across quite unimpeded because they're a lightweight. Huh. Okay, so that's how a particle in a field can, can create a, a property. So that's the direct significance of the boson. Then it provides a theoretical uh, basis for mass, which in turn provides the basis for explaining gravity. So, but to understand how this shows the design intelligence behind the universe, we need to know a little bit about the quarks and the quarks. There are the quarks and the leptons. There are uh, six of each. Four of them are highly unstable. So although we can create them in the lab by banging other things together, they tend to disintegrate pretty quickly and transform back into the two that are stable. The two quarks that are stable are the things that make up protons and neutrons, which people are probably familiar with. Yes. One of the leptons that's stable is the electron, which is the other thing that people are probably familiar with. The other um, stable lepton is something called a neutrino, which is, people probably don't know about it because it doesn't interact with matter very much. Now, turns out all the matter that we can see in the universe is composed of neutrons, protons and electrons, and all of the forces are comprised of these five bosons. So here we have everything in the universe that we can see, in a physical sense, is made out of just three particles. Cool. They're just designed (laughs) in such a way that they can go together to make all of the elements that we know with the resulting features in the elements that they can go together to make all of the compounds that we know, put the compounds together to make all kinds of stuff like this and this and you and me. Right. So, so God has designed these three fundamental particles so that everything in the universe can be constructed of it. If you think of somebody trying to design a car, for example, there are lots of different particle, or, uh, parts in a car. So be able to design something So that you can make everything with only three distinct parts (laughs) seems to me to be an incredible bit of intelligent design.
0: You know, many times creationists are are kind of chided. Well, you know, uh, no real scientist, you know, believes what the Bible says. That the Bible uh, teaches, you know, a, a young Earth. Uh, a six-day creation, how could you possibly believe in Genesis? I mean, you're, you've got your PhD in experimental nuclear physics. Um, you know, you're talking about radioisotope dating, all these, these kind of things you must have interacted with. How do you um, answer people when they ask you things like that and, and say, well, how can you then, um, you know, with what we're commonly being taught, how does that fit with what the Bible says about a young earth and a recent creation?
2: Good question, Cal. Um, I think the evidence from, from other branches of uh, science like geology and uh, paleontology and biology and genetics are all pretty clear. They're all exactly what you would expect from the biblical account of creation. They are, yes. Right? But in the age of the earth issue, especially with, re- with respect to radiometric dating, that doesn't seem to be the case. And, and that actually gave me a lot of trouble initially with this whole concept. As a physicist, yeah. As I a physicist, imagine. yeah. I and mean a Christian. <laughs> However... Radiometric dating isn't all that it seems to be when you look at it uh, in some considerable detail. Um, For example, uh, using a technique that is intended to measure the age of a rock from when uh, a molten rock from when it gets hard, uh, we get wildly incorrect answers. For the, uh, for example, the lava that was formed during the eruption of Mount St. Helens which was in 1980, right. they get measurements all the way up to 2.8 million years for the age of that rock since it became hard using that technique. It but it those,
1: those like, rocks are only about what,
2: 30, 35 exactly, years old. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so this gets traced back to one of the assumptions, and the assumption in that particular one is that there is no uh, of the, the resulting product, the radioactive decay product in the rock when it became hard because it was hot beforehand. Uh, so they've developed other techniques that are supposed to account for that, but when these techniques are used to measure rocks, uh, they get wildly different ages, and they should all agree. <laughs> okay. So it seems pretty clear from looking at the results of these things that there's, there's something amiss, and, it, and you can trace right. it back to the assumptions that go into the calculations. The calculations yeah. themselves are pretty straightforward, but they all make certain assumptions, like the one about there being no end product in the rock to start with. Uh, and if you look at those assumptions, there are assumptions about the history of the rock. And since no one's been around to actually observe and record that history, right. you can't know whether any of those assumptions are actually true. There are assumptions about the amount of radioactive element and, and resultant stable element that are present initially. There are assumptions about whether or not, or it's assumption about a closed system that assumes that nothing's been added to or removed from the sample during its entire existence. Right. And and you just can't know whether that's the case. And there's certainly lots of geological processes that could could make those things incorrect.
1: So Uh, the unreasonable assumptions that no one can know lead to the inaccuracies in, in, in that particular dating method.
2: That seems to be the case, yeah. certainly. When you look yeah. at the results, they're just all over the place. And, and when you know what the right answer is, you seem to always get the wrong answer. Wow. So when so you don't know what the right answer is, how do you know it, that the answer you've gotten yeah. is right? Yeah.
1: So you're a physicist, and, and yet when we talk about radioisotope dating, the physics involved in that, and here's a physicist who doesn't believe that this particular dating method indicates that the Earth is old. So We'll be back with more shortly.
0: Welcome back. This week we're talking to um, Jim Mason and we we're just talking about uh, radioisotope decay rates and, and these assumptions that are made, unproven assumptions, where, I mean, the average layperson, when they hear uh, an expert quote, well, this, you know, this rock here, this is, this is, you know, 35 million years old. They often just go, oh, well, they must know what they're talking about and, and don't really understand those assumptions. Yeah. Um, so just, just elaborate on that a little more for
2: us. Sure. Um, Many of the assumptions, as we we indicated, um, are about the history of the the rock and cannot be verified. One of them, which is that the uh, transformation from the radioactive uh, element to the stable element has always been the same as it is today, has been constant, has recently been shown by several experiments to actually not be true in the the short term right here and now today. They've they've looked, uh, in various universities, have looked at decay rates of well-known... Um, um, radioactive substances, cobalt-60 was one of them, it was one I used when I was doing my research, and they found that that rate, the the rate at which that uh, decays, varies on an annual basis. It seems to be somehow related to the distance between the Earth and the Sun or maybe the rotation of the Sun or something. They don't actually know. So
0: many people were taught that certain radioisotopes decay at a certain rate. We've measured them and so if if we start here and we've only got this you know, there's this much difference, we can calculate that and we can determine the age of something. That's just the way people have it in their head, right? Yes,
2: that's correct. The the assumption is that it's always been the same so that we can use that in the equation and, and get an age. Right. But that's that's now been shown not to be the case. I guess
1: that's like a clock that would run at different speeds, right? How would you ever use it to tell time if the clock (laughs) is constantly faster, slower, that kind of thing? So that's the problem with this particular dating method. Pretty much. One of the problems. That's That's great. What about carbon dating? People often say carbon dating, of course, has nothing to do with millions of years. It's a little different type of dating method than the ones that do give those vast ages. What do we know about carbon dating? Why doesn't it work either?
2: Well, again, it's based on a number of assumptions. Uh, a right. fundamental assumption in carbon dating is uh, that carbon dating is used for uh, material which is originally of organic nature because it's, it's, yes. it's sort of made Once from alive. the... Right. It's made uh, initially in the photosynthesis of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere into plant material, and then uh, animals consume the plant material and in- incorporate the radioactive carbon into their biological tissue and so on. Uh, and, and as they are alive and doing that, it, it reaches some kind of equilibrium. But when they stop, then uh, they're not replenishing it and the radiocarbon starts to decay away. And, and by measuring the ratio of the radiocarbon to the normal carbon in the sample at any particular time, you can then theoretically calculate, calculate how that long that's yeah, been going on. Right. But it's based on the assumption that when that plant material was growing, the ratio of carbon-14 to normal carbon, carbon-12 in the atmosphere, is the same as it is today.
0: Right. Okay. And if
2: that's incorrect, then the calculated age is incorrect. Well, that and, seems and like a reasonable assumption. Are there other well, suggestions that it's not? I, well, I would submit, from the biblical perspective, there's a great deal of suggestion that there's not. To start okay. with, <laughs> uh, we don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us, but carbon-14 is not essential for life. Carbon-12 is, but not carbon twelve. So, carbon-14, so it makes... It's reasonable to assume that God didn't make any. So then it would have to build up in the atmosphere. So during the 1,500 years that the vegetation was growing prior to the flood, that vegetation that essentially got buried and turned into coal, there would be a lower amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. There'd probably also be a higher amount of carbon-12 in the atmosphere because there was a huge amount of vegetation buried, and that all needs carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to sustain it, and that carbon dioxide would be made pretty much all from carbon-12. Okay. So the ratio yeah. was quite different before the flood, quite a bit smaller than it is today, and therefore the age would be quite a bit less.
0: So if we take the biblical history into account, it makes sense of the data that we're seeing in science. Yes,
2: Scient- scientists, some creation scientists got some coal samples from the U.S. Bureau of Mines and actually sent them away for radiometric dating. Now these coal samples should have been between um, three, 38 million and 318 million years old. And the instruments that are used to measure carbon 14 can only measure down to a level that corresponds to an age of about 90,000. Right. So anything that's older than 90,000 would not have enough radiocarbon to be detected. Mm-hmm. These samples all came back with very large amounts of radiocarbon and all about the same, regardless of the alleged wow. age of the coal. So they're Which
0: supposed means- to be in a time scale of, yeah. Right, that's much much shorter than the millions of yes. years. Yes, but you've yeah. So that and and they sense.
2: they all had more or less the same age, which is exactly what you would expect if all of this coal resulted from vegetation that was buried during the flood and grew before the flood. With a lower ratio of with a lower to ratio of C14 carbon to fourteen to, to carbon twelve. Yeah. Exactly
1: right. Good to hear Now there was a um, a creationist sort of a task force that mm. was set up a, a number of years ago now, to study specifically radioisotope dating and they some groundbreaking research there that the rate guys the radioisotopes and the age of the earth R-A-T-E. Uh, what are some of the what is the rate program and what are what what's some of the groundbreaking breaking research that they uh, that they were involved in
2: well as you mentioned the the rate program was a group of uh, creation scientists who got together to look at this issue of radioisotope decay and what it implied for the age of the Earth. And one of the experiments they did, one of the results that they found was the stuff we mentioned about carbon-14. Right. Right. So that was yeah. pretty interesting. Um, another um, in- very interesting work was some, the, some that they did on uh, some little wee, tiny crystals called zircon crystals, which tend to accumulate uh, uranium when they're formed, and uranium decays into lead. Uh, And when they looked at the ratio of uh, lead to uranium in these crystals and did the normal calculations for radiometric dating, uh, it gave an age of one and a half billion years for these zircon crystals, which incidentally were dug out of very deep in the earth by uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory and given to these guys to to do the work. Um, But what they also noticed was that there was an awful lot of helium in these crystals. Now when uranium decays to lead, it produces, for each uranium atom that decays, eight um, it's effectively helium nuclei, which then get electrons and turn into helium. Okay. And helium is, if you like, a slippery gas. It's very small, it's noble, it doesn't make any compounds, so it leaks out of everything. leaks out of helium balloons, yeah, but, in fact. Right. Right. <laughs> so um, if, if these zircon crystals had been one and a half billion years old, they should have had essentially no helium left in them. And they had amounts of helium cor- that would correspond to about 58% of the helium that would have been produced by as a result of the indicated decay.
1: Okay, so so if they're very very old, you just said that there shouldn't be a lot of helium there. Correct. That's because in one and a half billion years, there would have been plenty of time for the helium to, to uh, decay to to migrate to away, to, to leak out, away, yes, to, leak to, out, leak out to diffuse.
2: Yeah. What they say called diffuse out of the, out of yeah. the But what did they crown? find? Well, what they what they did before they found anything was they did some calculations. Uh, of the rate at which helium would diffuse through zircon, if in fact the zircon crystals were 1.5 billion years old, right. and another set of calculations based on what it would be if they were only 6,000 years old. Ah. And the difference was pretty large, like it was a factor of 100,000, oh, so yeah. it's not even close. Okay. And then they got some other zircon crystals from the same borehole and sent them away to a lab to have this diffusion rate measured, and the results came back exactly corresponding to the prediction based on a 6,000 year old earth. Wow. So it's a pretty good indication from um, radiometric dating, if you like, for a 6,000 year old earth. Based not on assumptions about original content or anything like that, right. but about how fast helium differs, diffuses through zircon. Completely unrelated. Yeah. And, 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 and what the difference d- is, you can actually
1: measure That's right. instead of the helium diffusion rates, right? right? Instead of just having that as a, as a, as a bald assumption, we can measure that That's, That's very interesting.
2: And, and one of the corollaries of that is that because of the amount of lead that was present, it's a pretty clear indication that there was indeed a period of accelerated nuclear decay in the past, so that this assumption about the decay rate being constant over time is probably not correct, as has been demonstrated by recent experiments. Incredible. So it kind of comes to all, so s- all comes together.
1: Science shows that accelerated nuclear decay was a very real possibility, and that fits wonderfully with with the Bible, and it means that the rocks that are measured via this method are all artificially
0: older. Correct. Now we've been talking about radioisotope dating and, and, and how that didn't seem to fit with biblical history, but at, at the first of the show, you made a, actually a, quite a bold statement when you, when you said, "Well, you know, the evidence from biology, genetics, geology, and even paleontology seemed to you know fit exactly what you'd expect from from what the Bible says." Now. That, that's probably a very shocking statement to many people. They would say, well, really? I thought all the evidence pointed to evolution. And, so, and coming from a scientist. Coming from you, a right? scientist, yeah. yeah. So, could could you explain what, what you mean by it? Give us some of the evidence that you feel is just so blatantly obvious. Right, I'll try.
2: I'm um, <laughs> going to start with biology. And here I'd like to quote a Nobel laureate, Dr. Jacques And I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right. He said, But the major problem is the origin of the genetic code and its translation mechanisms. The code is meaningless unless translated. The modern cells translating machinery consists of at least 50 macromolecular components which are themselves coded in DNA. The code cannot be translated otherwise than by products of translation. When and how did this circle become closed? It is exceedingly difficult to imagine. In other words, the instructions for making proteins that are encoded in the DNA can't be decoded unless you've already made some proteins using those machines (laughs) to make the proteins.
1: It's the chicken and egg problem. Precisely. Or the CD and the CD player. If you have instructions for how to make a CD player on the CD... How do you make the
2: CD? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Now, it is indeed difficult for evolutionists to imagine how that came about because it can't come about by slow and gradual right. processes, but it's perfectly in agreement with what's in the Bible. And then in genetics, uh, what we've learned about, about multi-level codes is that they can't come into existence spontaneously. They have to be created by something. Right. And, and yet we have this incredibly complex code in the DNA that we don't really understand yet. It's many, many layers, and, and yeah. people, they say that happened by accident. Now, on the other hand, we have the SETI the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence right. uh, scientists who are listening to, to radiation from the cosmos because they say if they see a code, it'll be an indication of an intelligence intelli- behind the code. <laughs> right. And so on the one hand, they say if you see a code, it's intelli- it indicates intelligence behind it. On the other hand, you've got all this complex code in the DNA. Well, that just happened by accident. Right. I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, you're actually, yeah. they're contradicting themselves in their own, own worldview, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay, well there's two, two great
2: evidences. Um, what else? Ah, and in genetics again, the geneticists tell us that um, by looking at mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited through the female line, right. that we have all descended from one woman. Imagine that. With three sublines. <laughs> and by looking at the y chromosomal DNA, it says we've all descended from one man. <laughs> now that's exactly what you would expect. <laughs> From the biblical account of creation. Exactly. With yeah. the bottleneck of the flood, reducing it to the three daughter in laws of Noah. Right. Right. What so, else could there be?
0: I, I guess it's just the fact that many people have just never been exposed to the arguments. Uh, I guess that, you know,
2: CMI, Creation, creation Ministries, is. Uh
0: is known for right on the website and, and, and things the like website
2: that. is excellent yes it has all this stuff available on the website and it's yeah, just a great yeah. source of information
1: right tremendous and the, and even the, the rate material i mean if if you're if you're watching you can go go to creation.com uh, type in type in rate or 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 get the rate book there the thousands not billions just a brilliant yeah. summary of that research it is fascinating yeah. stuff so yeah creation.com that's where you want to go to get more of this information and uh, we'll see you next time here on Creation Magazine Live. Creation Magazine Live is a production of Creation Ministries International, the publisher of Creation Magazine and the minds behind creation.com. If you want to chip in to support our ministry, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.